Welcome to Pub Natter, where we record each episode in a different pub in Rutland, the smallest county in England. In each episode, your hosts, Tim and Justin, give a voice to the landlords and landladies and a special guest with a specific area of interest or expertise. We hope you enjoy our chats and it encourages you to go and explore our little county and all it has to offer. Like the motto says, there is much in little. In this episode, we are hosted by Karen McGregor, who is the new landlady at the Knoll in Whitwell, Rutland. We discuss the interesting village of Whitwell and how it became twinned with Paris and Karen's big plans for the pub. Our special guest is Joe Davis, the head of reserve management for Leicester and Rutland Wildlife Trust. He is also responsible for discovering the Rutland Dragon. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. So we're in the Knoll in Whitwell, and we're with the landlady, Karen McGregor, and Justin, a co-presenter. And we're going to, in a minute, be having a chat with Karen. Um, we're sat at one of her tables drinking some really nice ale, I've got to say. Mm. Um, kept really well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, it's Ru- and it's Rutland Osprey, and it's from the Grain Store Brewery, which is in Oakham. Um, and it's a nice pint. Um, as usual, Justin's been doing some Googling about the history of the Knoll. And um, so why don't you kick us off by, by telling us about the history? Well, um, before we go into the pub, I uh, just want to mention the village. Um, if you drive into the village, and it really is blinking, you miss it, but if you drive into the village, you'll see the sign saying Whitwell, and underneath is the legend twinned with Paris. Mm. I've been driving past that for 27 years, and it didn't really occur to me that that was odd. I, I've been driving past it for a long time, and I always presumed it wasn't Paris, France. No, it, it was is Paris, France. It was some small Paris somewhere. Well, uh, the twinning came about in 1980, uh, and the idea for doing it formed one drunken evening in this very pub. <laughs> and at the time, the village of Whitwell comprised 19 houses <laughs> and 41 people. Um, but it did have an outside toilet, which they knew, which was called the Pissoir. <laughs> and the regulars at the pub felt that this was enough Gallic heritage to justify twinning the town with Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so they did. Um, so they wrote three times to the then mayor of Paris, somebody you may have heard of, called Jacques Chirac, oh. who went on to greater things, mm. if being president of France is a great thing. Um, and they wrote to him three times to offer Paris the honour of being twinned with Whitwell. And the first two letters were completely ignored. A Gallic shrug. <laughs> uh, and on the third occasion, they set a deadline of 15 days to reply, after which silence would be deemed acceptance. Um, so, unsurprisingly, <laughs> no reply was forthcoming from Mr. Sh- Monsieur Chirac. Um, so on the 13th of June 1980, Paris was officially accorded the honour of being twinned with Whitwell in Rutland. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do Paris know about this? They... Can I, can I interject? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I find it incredible. This was just yeah. a, a, a laugh that was dreamt up in this pub. I find it incredible it's been twinned with Paris. I know. So, well, <laughs> sorry. Well, if you go to Paris, they, they don't have signs saying twinned with Whitwell. They have signs <laughs> saying twinned with Rome. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it is a slightly um, imbalanced relationship. Anyway, on the 13th of June, the good people of Whitwell decided that they were twinned with Paris. And Paris didn't object. And so to mark the occasion, they held a parade. The only French representation they could find was a local French teacher who was the victim of a kind of consensual kidnap. <laughs> they dragged him down here for this big parade, stuck oh, a Napoleon God. hat on his head and paraded him through the streets in an open-top Citroen. <laughs> no. Um, Are you making this up? No, no, this is absolutely true. I read it on the BBC, so it must be true. I'm learning. <laughs> So Citroen 2CV. I think it was a Duchevelle with a um, soft with, top. With the soft top, yes. Uh, wow. so, so this poor French teacher was stuck in a Napoleon hat and dragged through the streets. <laughs> Apparently hundreds of people attended. None of the locals knew who any of them were, but people got wind of it. And I guess in 1980 there wasn't much else to do. There was no Netflix or so. Uh, so good the, music, though. They, they did have good music. 
Um, but for no iPods. Uh, so, so the event was formalised by the erection of a wooden sign at the entry points to the village, um, saying twinned with Paris. And there was a plaque put on the old piece wall, which um, we believe is still around today. Yeah. And uh, our landlady has uh, acquired it. And eventually, Monsieur Chirac did get around to saying no. <laughs> no. But no. by then it was too late. And Whitwell had its twin. And among other things, added Bastille Day to its annual calendar of, of events. <laughs> but for me, the most surprising thing about the whole affair is that Rutland County, Rutland County Council, who are not known for their sense of humour, mm. actually joined in with this <laughs> and provided the permanent metal signage that sits on the yeah. two entry points to the village. Um, and so the twinning is announced to anybody that passes through the mm. small but perfectly formed village of Whitwell. My French history isn't that good. When did they storm the Bastille? I want to say 1787, but, but I, I could be wrong. I was thinking more of the date <laughs> rather than the year. Oh, 15th of July. 15th of July. Fantastic. So I reckon we should this take is, ourselves... This is the Brexiteel Francophobe <laughs> who knows more about France than you do. <laughs> I think we should take ourselves up here on the 15th of July. I'm not sure they're still celebrating, but maybe our new landlady might be able to read. Well, I wasn't here. Well, hold on a minute. I took over the 22nd of June. I don't remember anything of that celebration happening on the 15th of July. Maybe we should start it. <laughs> or restart it. But I've got this vision in my head now, like Marseillaise, 15th of July. I think there's an opportunity there, Karen. Well, Massive opportunity. Well, I... If there was one before, I missed it, because <laughs> it didn't happen. But if there's an opportunity, yeah. and uh, obviously we are, yeah. um, perhaps I should celebrate it this year. We'll have a chat with some of your locals. I'm sure yeah. some of them were around in 1980 when it all got kicked off. Yeah. So it, it, I have to say for the record that um, Paris does not consider itself twinned with Whitwell. No. It isn't an official twinning, but... No, it isn't. There is signage. But, but there's signage and it's yeah. good enough for us. And it's, yeah. a, br it's a brown plaque, which, which makes it a touristy yes. thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's a brown plaque. It's official. It's official. So anyway, Karen, yes. tell, tell us, how, how long have you been here yourself so in, uh, in Whitwell? Took the lease over on the 22nd of June. This year? This year. Took the keys. Well, it was a very happy day. Mm. And then, but I used to come to Rutland quite a lot when my daughter was baby. All right. So it's, are you from near this area? No. Um, but I used to bring my daughter here. We used to go to the Falconry Centre. We used to go to lots of places around here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not from here. I've travelled a lot. My dad was in the army. I wanted to live in the country. Nice. And bring, I want to bring this country pub back to life. And the reason why I wanted this pub, the reason why I'm here, is because it's beautiful mm -hmm. area. And I've got to say to listeners that the pub is stunning. It's yeah. gorgeous. And uh, I've, <coughs> tried, I've tried to bring the outside in. in. You know? I've, I've changed, I think, structurally. Would never. It's beautiful. Mm. It's quirky. So what's the, what's the response been? Really good response. My vision for this place is to bring it back to its former, a, a different former glory. Sure, yeah. So is, is food a big part of your oh, offering? Abs absolutely. So, I, so the gastropub yeah. type? It's not a gastropub, it's a dining room. This okay. is a dining room, that's, that's a bar area. So what sort, what sort of food um, are you planning to do? I work on a four-by-four four menu, by four, okay? Including vegetarian, trying to get it back, back up to gluten-free and vegan. And use local meat suppliers. My, my, my beer comes from local suppliers. Yeah. My internet comes from local suppliers. When I moved here, I wanted to use everything local. So it's done on a every two day, three day kind of situation. Cool. I think our listeners are going to love that. The fact that it's you're using everything locally. And I use now chalkboards because 
when it's gone, it's gone. So the knoll's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> but I hate, I hate that word, home cooked. I hate yeah. that word. Yeah. Because that could have been like be some old lady cooking your food and bringing it to you. So everything is cooked here. Fresh. Fresh. Customers are always told it might take a bit longer because it's cooked fresh. I think most people are prepared to wait for good food, yeah. aren't they? Especially if they know before they come. I think if you know that you're going to have proper food that's cooked from fresh ingredients that will change from day to day yeah. and <clears throat> will, will be cooked, will be, yep. they'll, they'll start to prepare it when you order it. Yeah, I think if people understand that, yeah. they'll appreciate it. I and just I think always the people tell to know. people, I always tell people that basically some foods are ready quicker. Probably the starters are quicker. Yeah. But if you say, for example, tonight uh, there's steak and owl pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is cod loin with chorizo. You know, you. Um, Mushroom risotto, which is for vegans. We've got a, um, t- tonight was a vegetarian Wellington, which comprises feta cheese, onions, mm. mushrooms, peppers. Nice. Um, but my plans for this place is to re-tarmac the road, put back um, sort of proper um, disabled parking, whatever you want to call it. There's a pathway um, here that leads up to the farm, which takes you round the round a walk. So is to clear that, uh, put stones up, a clear uh, walkway with ropes, lights. Um, I want to bring back. I want to bring back people walkers. I want to provide walkers with a place to. Lock, be able to lock their bikes, bring the wellies, you know, mm. provide a linen service. Good food, good food, good hot cooked food. And I want to work with local people, the sailing club, the osprey, the trout farm, all these people to offer discounts, packages, and work with the local people. Kind of a taste of Rutland. Yeah, mm. and I want to. I want to make this more of a destination point. Yeah, Karen, yes. um, we wish you all the best um, for your future endeavours, and it's been a delight chatting with you. Can yeah. I just add also? I have a jukebox that is from the nineteen forties. Wow! Which has got all the original mechanics in perfect working order. Same, same music. 1940s music. All up to eight, all up to 70s. Wow. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. And I want to make that into a bit of a social room. And I'll also be, I'm also going to be bringing back live music. Mm. Quiz nights, pie nights, darts nights, billiards nights, all of it. If you put a minibus on from Opal. Ah! Can I stop I, you there? I think you might get a, a few takers. So one of my things, my business plan was to provide a driving service. That would be a great idea. Because there are no Ubers here. There's no bus route other than the odd one. And I think a one by the council, I think that comes through once a week. And also the fact that the location it has been so difficult to get staff here. Mm, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. If, if is you, is if there you... a buck coming? No. So that's something that you think you might be able to do? Absolutely. Because I think if, if your local audience don't buy into it, I think there are plenty of people in Oakham and probably Stanford who would enjoy coming to a place like this for an experience that's a little, a little bit different. Because yeah. I always find that people, when people come, well, which one of us is having a drink? You know? Him. 
<laughs> always. So it's, it's always <laughs> That's like... That's unfair. So it's always like, who's having a drink? So my plan was to provide that service, which is, which is what I'm working towards. Yeah, I mean, that will work really well for things like quiz nights. Yeah, I think you've, I think you've spotted one of the major issues that prevents um, couples and friends going to pubs yeah. t- that are out that are, that are out of their right walking range. Yeah. And if you can provide that service, I think it will be huge. <laughs> well, I wish you all the best, and I'm sure Justin does as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And thank um, you for coming here and talking to me. Absolute <laughs> pleasure. Um, I know the listeners are going to love it. So... Um, Looking forward to seeing you again in the future and seeing yeah. how it's going. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, guys, for tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're in the Knoll in Whitwell. Um, we are with Joe Davis, who is the head of nature reserve management that covers all of Leicester Rutland Wildlife Trust reserves. He's on my right. On my left is my co-presenter, Justin Perry. Um, welcome, both of you. Um, you. So, first of all, Joe, why don't you just kick off by telling us um, a little bit about your day job? Yeah, so I'm I'm a very lucky person. I um, basically do uh, as as a job, my, one of my passions. Um, so I work with people and wildlife. So um, yeah, I work for Leicester and Rutland Wildlife Trust. We have over 35 nature reserves, um, 19,000 members, over 90,000 members now, um, and do work managing nature reserves and also engaging with people um, across, um, you know, all spectrums. So, um, yeah, I've been working for for this trust for over 11 years, um, doing different jobs. So Um, give us an idea of what your typical day day is at work. Well, today, um, as an example... um, in the morning, a few emails, and then um, headed off to um, to Holwell, which is just uh, north of Melton, Mowbray, to, to help a colleague. We've got a tree planting project there where we're putting in 13,000 trees. Wow. Um, so um, I went and gave her a hand, met with the volunteers. So there was 21 volunteers helping there. And um, we, um, we, we had baked potatoes and pl- we planted about 300 trees. And um, I gave her a hand bringing some, some kit back. Um, but that's not always a typical day. Very often it might well be in front of a spreadsheet doing, um, you know, sure. bore, bore, um, the, the less boring um, element of the job. But, um, yeah, it's really varied. It can just be whatever whatever nature reserves throw up. So we've got wetlands, woodlands, grasslands, um, and, uh, you know, they take an awful lot of management. So who are you accountable to? Um, <clears throat> so I'm accountable to my chief exec, uh, Matt Carter. And um, obviously, we've got a board of trustees, um, right? Who, who um, you know, who are all, who are accountable to above that. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really great job. I'm I'm really lucky. Um, I've been working for the Wildlife Trusts um, for gosh, twenty three, twenty four years. And what I really like about Wildlife Trust as a movement is that they're local. So, you know, we as Leicester and Rutland Wildlife Trust are um, are focusing on our counties. Um, previously, before that, I was working in Suffolk for the Suffolk Wildlife Trust, and we focused on Suffolk's wildlife rather than, you know, sort of more national organisations right. that, that okay. you know, have a more general focus as opposed to that, that you know, that, that local element, that localness that we have. I guess the, the main topic today is going to be talking about biodiversity and how that applies prominently in Rutland. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we try to condense that topic into 25 minutes or so... We need to address the Temnodontosaurus trigonodon in the room. Wow! Well done, Justin. <laughs> How many attempts was that? Because listeners, uh, as well as the day job, he's going to tell us all about. Joe is the man who discovered what has now become known as the Rutland Sea Dragon, and we can't have Joe with us and miss the opportunity to tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah. so the, the first question, which I'm sure you've answered a thousand times, mm-hmm. how did you feel when you realised what you'd found? Yeah. I, I, obviously been asked it a few times and I think to begin with I didn't know what I'd found um so you know we were we were working on re-landscaping islands on the Rutland Water Nature Reserve and um we'd lowered the water levels down to to get a big um, bulldozer to push the islands out to make them low and flatter so the birds would find it more attractive to roost on them and to use them to breed on which that worked really well 
And uh, myself and colleague Paul Trevor were walking through the mud on this lagoon um, with, with, with thigh waders on and, and a laser level over our shoulders with the bulldozer working in the background. And I looked down and saw a series of ridges in the, in the mud that looked organic. There's lots of old clay pipes, layer land drains, but this, um, they look quite different. I've got a, I've got a vertebrae, um, well, a replica, a 3D replica here of, of it. And what was sticking out of the mud was 16, the top of 16 of the vertebrae from this, um, what turned out to be an ichthyosaur. And, um, and these little nodules were sticking out. And, I, and I'd worked in the Inner Hebrides um, for, the, for the RSPB and found quite a few um, whale and dolphin vertebrae. Now, I didn't know it was a marine mammal. I wasn't sure if it, it was a mammoth or whatever it might be. Um, so I took photos and um, sent them, um, well, rang up Rutland County Council, um, having asked uh, some other people what they found when the lagoon was created, because that lagoon is only, only about 13 years old. So when you say an island, is that close to the shore, or is it actually <coughs> quite a long way into the, the yeah. water? So um, uh, on the nature reserve, um, we've got eight lagoons, which are separate to the main water, which we hold water back in or pump water into to create ideal conditions for the wildlife there. Um, lots of edge, um, uh, lots of islands. So, um, yeah, this, this island had been, lands this, this area had been landscaped not too long ago, and uh, they'd taken the level of the, um, the ground down only by about a metre and a half. So I was thinking, yeah, is it a mammoth or something you know, not that ancient, not not as old as this turned out to be. So I rang up uh, Rutley County Council, which infamously got on the in the in um, a lot of the press, and said, "Who do I speak to if I think I found a dinosaur?" Sorry, I just love the finding a mammoth's a bit meh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, they said that we don't have a dinosaur department, but we will get hold of somebody in, in the archaeological de department. And um, yeah, so the, the sort of the next step was was paleontologists coming out, um, and uh, Dr. Mark Evans came came out. Dr. Mark Evans came out and um, and saw it. I'd, I'd sent the photos and was just like, I'm 99% sure that this is an ichthyosaur. Um, mm. But what we didn't know is whether it was just a few bones sticking out, or whether it was more complete. So um, we did a, um, they did an exploratory dig. They dug all the way back to the tail, and um, they they were amazed to find that it was, com you know, that that was all complete. But we didn't know what happened, with what was going to happen at the head end. Um, but we're in the middle of COVID, um, so it was quite difficult to get together in mm. in groups and. Um, you know, you kind of forget now, really, don't you, that you mm. weren't allowed in more than two or three people together. Um, so we, we, we waited for the breeding season to go by and um, they came back in the summer and, and dug the rest of the, the, you know, and excavated the rest of the, the find. And um, to our astonishment, the head was there. Um, some of the flippers were there looking virtually complete. Okay. Um, and and, and this, this creature was 10 and a half metres long. <laughs> Um, so yeah. everything's measured in double-decker buses, and this was the old yeah. classic double-decker bus size. Um, and, and, and through looking at the other species around it, the, the, the tiny um, creatures, mollusk-like creatures, they've, they've dated it to 181 and a half million years old. Wow. So, and so, Jurassic. Yeah, Jurassic period. So um, one of the facts I, I really like, I do a talk on this um, quite um, regularly for, for evening groups and the like but the last t-rex was about 17 million years ago roughly this was 181 million years so we, we're closer to mm. the t-rex in timeline than this you know wow. than that t-rex was with this so and how big was the head um, um we're sitting at a table for eight people yeah it's it's just about it's about my height so about um, 1.8 meters so probably long. three yeah, sort of, yeah, three people sitting aside of each other. So, yeah. wow. Yeah, I um, mean... Just, uh, just for our listeners, the the vertebrae, I would say, is about the size of a standard big ashtray. Yeah. In fact, if you compare that to a human's vertebrae. <laughs> if you turn it on its side. Yeah, it actually looks a bit like <laughs> one yeah. as well. It looks like one too. And so, for anybody under 50 who can't remember what an ashtray looks like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you had an ashtray in your house? I've never smoked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank um, God. And, and then this, this turned out to be um, a Temnodontosaurus. Well, they're pretty sure that it's a Temnodontosaurus trigonodon, as you 
nearly said. So we, yeah, so, so well said. He goes practicing all day. Um, <laughs> and that's um, that's the um, nearest one before us found in Germany. So it's a new species for the UK. And also mm. the biggest complete fossil ever found in the UK as well. Which doesn't really make any sense anyway, because everything was completely different during that time. UK, mm. Germany. Yeah, they yeah, was all, yeah, absolutely. We were somewhere around about the Mediterranean yeah. at that point. Latitude-wise. It's, it's a good British dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. And we wouldn't have found yeah. it if we hadn't gone for Brexit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wonder how long it would take before to get Brexit into the conversation. That's the first time I've mentioned it in three episodes. Um, oh, so, uh, a couple of things. One, one uh, well, three actually, then I come to mind. How is it possible that had you not recognised what it was, that it had been somebody else there, that it could have been damaged or destroyed or, or just missed? Was it fortunate that it was somebody who knew what they were looking at? Yeah, I think so. I think the, the set of circumstances that we had the water levels low in the winter, we don't usually. We usually have the lower water levels in the summer. Over time, it would have degraded, you know, frost action and erosion. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, a, an interested, you know, naturalist, um, you know, I've been passionate about this since as a child um, to sort of go, hang on a minute, you know, what's that inquiry in mind? So, yeah, set of circumstances, but incredibly lucky set of circumstances. Mm. Now, I think you've explained why it wasn't, because it's quite close to the shoreline, I believe, where you found it. Yeah, well, in the, in the, yeah, in the lagoon, so yeah, yeah. on the shoreline of the lagoon. So, cause, uh, it's hard to understand how it was missed when they built the reservoir, but I guess if you've moved... A couple of metres of soil, it could easily have been missed. Yeah, so when the original reservoir was built, this is about 400 metres away from the original reservoir. So this is a new lagoon created. Uh -huh. um, and it was created as compensatory habitat for when they bring the water levels down on the main reservoir. Um, it, cr it makes the triple SI, so the site of special scientific interest, and the Ramsar smaller. So if they're going to bring the water levels down, the birds need to go somewhere else, and they created these lagoons for those birds to go there when they drop right. it down. Um, final one for you on this, mm. and I'm mildly fascinated because I'm, I was in piling of foundations, so excavation in clay is something that I'm quite used to. Yeah. My understanding is that they actually lifted not just the skeleton, but the the, the body of clay that it was encased in. Yeah. They managed to cut the whole lot out and bring it up as one. Mm -hmm. How did they do that? that was Well, in sections... So um, it, I can't remember how many sections it was now, but the head was one, then the torso, and then the tail in sections, and then, um, then the flippers. Um, so what they did is they dug around it, and they dug underneath it, leaving plinths there underneath, and then created a framework around it and covered it in plaster, um, like you would if you broke your leg. Um, and then um, we got um, strops underneath it and diggers, tractors, excavators, and we literally lifted to sort of break that plinth that was left there, and these little um, sort of towers of mud underneath, and popped it and took it away. Um, and that's we the the funding is there to do the the next step really for us um, through the Leveling Up Fund. Um, so uh, next year in 2024, we'll be um, that will be the paleontologists will be cleaning it up and studying it, finding out what it you know maybe we'll find out what it ate. There might be some food in its stomach. It maybe if it was female, maybe it was pregnant when it died. Yeah. And there might be tooth marks if it so was predated. It, it will be completely released from the clay, will it, eventually? Yeah. And yeah. displayed like the ones we see in the Natural History Museum. Yeah. Held together with wires and things. Yeah, the, the, there's most likely to be a replica um, because that might well be, um, you know, like, you know, the quality of the, the you know, the 3D printing that they can do. Um, but um, You need a pretty big printer. You would, yeah. <laughs> I know, maybe in sections. Um, but yeah, we very much hope, well, the plan is for it to come back to Rutland and be displayed at Rutland Water. Fantastic. We'll touch on the moment that gave you your 15 minutes, but um, yeah. the main purpose today is to talk about biodiversity um, in general and more specifically in connection with Rutland and, and, and locally. Mm. So, uh, Tim. So cool, so... First why don't we kick off with a really easy question for the listeners. So what is biodiversity and why does it matter? Um, well, yeah, biodiversity is, is you know, uh, the, the wildlife and um, the world we live in, really, in, in, all, of its, in all of its diverse, um, you know, states, really. So, um, 
you know, before humans were, were here, we lived in a, the world as an incredibly biodiverse, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, habitat in its different variations. Um, we would have probably been a mixture of, you know, small meadows and woodlands and 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 um, and scrublands that was being, you know, being managed by large herbivores with carnivores predating on them, moving them around, and that obviously humans have, have completely changed that landscape. Um, so why does it matter? I, I think it matters. Um, because, well, personally, I value wildlife, uh, and um, and you know, I find great pleasure from um, from observing and being in a, you know, seeing wildlife. It makes me feel, you know, it makes me feel um, happy and, and content. And I think it's great for people's mental health. Sure. Um, living in a biodiverse world, um, but also it's you know, it's. Wow, there's so many facets to it. Like you say, it's a huge subject, but you know, um, you know, trees trees produce oxygen for us. Sure. You know, um, and um, and they they keep us cool. Um, yeah, tr- different trees diff- support different types of life, mm-hmm. different insects. Sure. So you know, if we're going to have a, a diversity, you know, if we're going to have that diversity and all those different species, then um, you know, we we need to um, need to make sure that we've got that you know we try and keep those different species of tree um in the landscape um and try and have sort of natural systems as possible to to achieve that sure so there's an aesthetic um aspect to it is there an objective aspect to it where if you lose species or a group of species that then has a kind of knock-on effect to because those species are needed to support something else, um, you lose one type of tree or one type of fern or something, and and as a consequence, something else doesn't grow, which in turn means that something doesn't feed on it, and and so on. Yeah, I mean th- that whole ecosystem, that whole circle of life. You know, take an oak tree for example. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of different um, species that reliant on that. Um, I've got a massive one in my garden. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is great because you you know especially those more mature oak trees that you know as they as they you know as they're de- decaying they're um, you know they're producing deadwood which is great for beetles. Um, they're the insects that are on that are, are creating food for bats and birds. Um, you know, plus the oxygen for us. Um, I'm a bit of a secret mushroom hunter. And um, yeah. they are the number one tree for mushrooms. Yeah. So each of those different species of tree, or be it a you know a grass or a or a sedge, or you know there's some along those li- you know along those lines, um, will have a group of species that are reliant on it, um, and those species are interreliant. You know, so without those insects, we don't have swallows. You know, without swallows, we don't have hobbies feeding on them, which are a, an amazing falcon that comes in from Africa every year, and, and it literally follows the swallows from from south to north and back again. Um, and those swallows are feeding on, you know, it's simplifying it, but feeding on mosquitoes that are wanting to feed on us. You know, and so there's an impact on us as humans, not just the sort of the enjoyment element, but we're, we, you know, we are part of sure. the, the the biodiversity of, of Know, of our counties, we always tend tend to look at it from the perspective of human beings, don't we? Yeah, there is a conceit actually that with all of the things about climate change and um, what we need to do about it, it's all built around the the, the conceit that the human race needs to survive. Whereas right. I think Mother Earth <laughs> would barely notice if we disappeared in in the, yeah. the, the the geological time yeah those of those of us who have children want the world to be in the right you know right state for for humanity to continue and our and our children to have an enjoyable and you know um in you know a life where they can see a future for our planet um and i think biodiversity is is key to that in in climate change control as we go forward you know we know that for example trees you know, fix carbon, and then maybe not the the the, the total answer. They, you know, we don't think we can go on long haul flights if we planted a couple of trees. Um, but you know, if we if we do, we start to moderate and also realise that you know biodiversity and and um, and Mother Nature can really help us to to sort of combat that. Then you know, we can 
we can mo hopefully moderate what we do and you know mod and and um, mother nature will help to moderate the effects in the future this, uh, there are there are a lot of very simplistic answers and i don't think it's a simplistic subject it, as you've said it's everything there's a there are there are um, un unintended consequences of everything you do yeah um, you know in, you're going to talk in a moment about the uh, changing of um, species from south to north, the mm. migration of certain things that 20, 30 years ago you would never find north of Watford Gap and now they're yeah, creeping yeah, yeah. up into the Midlands and beyond. Yeah. In fact, is there anything along that line, that, that a good example of that you can think of? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, we've seen massive um, species change um, in the in the counties. Um, particularly the more um, the more transient species. So birds are a really obvious one from that perspective. Because mm. obviously they can fly, so they can make those those movements really quickly. And um, yeah, I mean we've had um, this year what's happened in in um, in southern Spain um, with the really hot um, temperatures they're having, and also with the sheer amount of water that's taken out of the rivers for um, for, for um, fruit and vegetable production, um, they've seen a really drastic impact on the wetlands um, around Doñana, so Seville area, um, to the point at which there was just virtually no water. So we had birds coming up, you know, almost immediately and trying to breed in Leicestershire. So species that you'd never, you know, we, you, you would people have, would have driven hours to go and see we're knocking around, you know, in, in sort of on the Saw Valley. Um, wow. So night herons and and then, you know, for example, great white egrets, which um, were, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have great white egrets at Rutland Water. We're seeing 50 great white egrets now. So that's within a decade of change. Um, so, yeah, I think that birds are a really good indicator of that because they can be so transient. Those species that that, you know, are going to um, either have to, you know, like a, tr like a tree or a plant species that, you know, they, they can't make those jumps very quickly unless we help them. A couple um, of metres a year, I should imagine. Well, exactly. Um, they're, they're the ones that are really going to struggle. Um, and also, you know, you know, invertebrates and the like, those that can't fly, um, mm. that are really going to struggle with extreme, with, with extreme climate uh, implications of, of our, you know, that we're seeing through global warming. So, you know, the birds have moved from, you know, Seville area <laughs> up to us for the summer. But what happened to the invertebrates, the long-term effects? But the, the birds haven't moved because it's got warmer here. They've moved because the place they normally go is no longer available. Yeah, but interestingly, we are warm enough for them to... As well. ...to have a go at, yeah, you know, to, to try to attempt to breed... You know, if it was if it was a uh, a classic nineteen seventies twenty degrees summer, you know, of a child of the seventies, then you know they might not try it. But what um, what temperature did we see? We probably saw, you know, mid to late twenties this this summer. Well, look, yeah, summer I think we had the lowest temperatures in the of, in July that we've had for for years. But that's the difference between weather and climate. But yes, was, uh, yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. it the hottest year for ages anyway? Regardless, of yeah, that. in the world, I think it was, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. What stops a forest from completely taking over a, a country, or you know, why do you get these patches of, of meadow grass or whatever? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, large herbivores. So, if you look in Africa, for example, the the elephants are literally pushing the trees over. So, you know, they're they're maintaining open savanna conditions. So, um, and we would have had, you know, mammoths. Um, you know, we would have had um, very large cows in Europe, um, and um, and you know, those, so those large herbivores impact it. But also, it's soil it's soil types as well. Um, if you've got really thin soils, the trees will probably struggle to set mm -hmm. proper roots down, and you get a storm, and they might get blown over, um, and then they, you know, those areas get grazed. So the, um, you know, there's no there's no saplings coming up. So those areas are, are maintained as as an open habitat. So, you know, we know that because we can see the species like nightingales, for example, um, which are a, a small warbler that flies up from um, from Africa, a beautiful song, that nests in scrubby areas. So, you know, that that through through the millennia has, has evolved to to live in scrubby conditions. So those woodlands must have had scrub in them for nightingales to have been to have evolved. So um, and, and, you know, other birds that, that like open areas, um, 
you know, uh, the off sort of our classic farmland birds. Where were they before the farm? You know, where were lapwings? They were in open areas on estuaries and, and areas that were, were, were grazed by, by large herbivores. So, yeah, it was a, there was a natural system there creating this, you know, the diversity of habitats. And also rivers flooding, mm -hmm. you know, and opening big areas out. Uh, are, there, gravel. are there any, like, key species that are under threat <laughs> at the moment that would be a really good idea to save because they are one of the species that affect loads of other things? I mean, uh, I would love to see wild release of beavers, for example. Mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of projects in the UK. They, they, they are wild in some areas of the UK, but they're called keystone species. Mm -hmm. So these are these species that if they're they're let to just do what they want to do. You know, um, if you look at a map, um, some brilliant maps, some really good work by the Devon Wildlife Trust, actually, on, um, on, on what, you know, the areas that beavers have created from a habitat perspective by putting a dam in, you know, and it's creating, mm. you know, hectares of wetlands, which, you know, dragonflies enjoy. Um, maybe it's the reedy corner where you've got, you know, reed warblers, in and, and um, they're they're cutting the trees and creating scrub as well. So willow warblers are, are you know in those areas, and the fish are in there because they've created pools. Which if it's just a fast flowing stream, you've got a different species of fish that start mm -hmm. to use it. So those, those keystone species can create an entire ecosystem and habitat. Sure. So but, and they are natural to UK as well, aren't they? Yes, yeah. they've introduced yeah. them in Norfolk. Yeah, but they've, they've introducing them into into cage, into caged areas, fenced yeah. areas, and you know, and I think if we want them to be landscape engineers and to create this, um, these amazing areas for wildlife, then I think that we need to do wild releases of those species. So anything that's keystone species, like a beaver, I'd say, you know, let's um, let, let's let's do that. And what is the perceived downside of allowing them wild? Do, do they destroy farmland, for example, by by <laughs> For their activities that's that's often the issue and you know the devon wildlife trust done a lot of studies on that um yeah you know if, if they if they've created um a, a dam next to a, a low-lying arable field then you know it kind of it can impact that um you know that productivity from the fields um you know in an ideal world you know the government have um you know um put money into uh, you know into lots of different environmental projects there may be you know these areas which are really suitable to being rewetted and we're in a we're in a climate crisis and we're in a biodiversity crisis you know maybe maybe they're the areas we should concentrate on funding say well okay if you've lost this habitat not sorry if you've lost this productive area then you should be compensated rather than leaving a field strip mm. you know um that's not got arable farming going on it um, that's simplistic, I know, and, and obviously, you know, farms may well have been farmed for generations in a particular way. So it's, it's a motive and it's not an easy one to say, here's a magic wand, magic, um, beavers are the, you know, the, the answer to all our prayers. Um, but I think that hopefully, we as, I think we as a nation are realising that, you know, we do need to do more. We're one of the most nature-deprived countries in the world. Mm. Um and you know, and 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 we're the what the sixth richest. Yeah. You know, are we getting rich because of that? But surely we have the ability and the and the mindset and the and the funding to be able to to reverse that and to really show and showcase you know sort of product really productive um, forward thinking conservation work. So taking it back, what can people? What can your average Joe do? to make a difference and help. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, th those who were fortunate to um, to have a, I mean, take it back to the bare bones of, you know, if you've got a garden, mm -hmm. you can do something for wildlife. Keep the you grass. Know. Yeah, don't mow the grass. Certainly, you know, err away from getting, you know, plastic grass. Um, you know, Concrete. No, nobody, nobody saw hedgehogs, you know, munching away on, um, on worms on them. You know, on a on a on a on a plastic on a plastic grass um, in your garden. Um, so yeah, I mean, a tiny pond in your garden. You know, it was Barbara Young um, who um, I think she ended up in Natural England. But what about RSPB? Um, she said conservation is easy. You just add water. <laughs> um, and I think that Rutland water is a massive. You know, <clears throat> is something really obvious to show. You know, we've got twenty five thousand wildfowl. 
at Rutland Water in the winter at times, you know, when the reservoir wasn't there, that wasn't there. And you can see, you're obviously not going to get 25,000 birds in your garden, but, but if, you, if you put in a small pond, you will probably incre- you'll probably increase the biodiversity in your garden by three or four times, you know, because you, you may well get, you know, you may well get newts or you may well get, um, you know, um, uh, diving beetles, can, can fly and they come into that pond um, so you'll have a variety of invertebrates just coming into that pond and different different um, species um, you know somewhere for your, the hedgehogs can go and have a drink I know it sure. sounds really simple but yeah leaving some rough areas leaving a few logs um, not mowing a bit of your, you know a part of your lawn mm. for invertebrates to, to go and feed in and enjoy it, 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 it's all within our capability and grasp and it's not a difficult thing to do. You know, bird boxes, um, you know, I'd love to see, um, and, and it's starting to happen, but, you know, in, in new builds, swift bo- swift bricks mm-hmm. put into new build houses, you know, for swifts to be able to utilise. They're not expensive things to do um, when you're t- thinking, t- talking about creating new housing. But, um, yeah, it is definitely within our capability to improve the land around us be at our homes and areas for wildlife by doing some simple, small steps. So something like no mow may, which is a, becoming a bit of a thing, Yes. does that work if you just leave it for a month or do you have to say, I'm going to set aside this part of my garden and that, that, that's just wild flowers? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would probably try and wait until the middle of July before I mowed. So no mow may is a really good start because, you know, all the... All those flowers that come up, be they dandelions or daisies, whatever in that garden, are creating nectar for for invertebrates. You know, and that nectar is a food source that they wouldn't have otherwise. So, you know, you're already increasing the biodiversity in your garden by creating mm-hmm. a small area of nectar, you know, um, and that long grass they may well be able to to you know, to breed in. So yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a brilliant um you know suggestion no no may but if you can leave it until later in the summer all the better sure and bee friendly flowers big thing yeah yeah i mean you know buddleia in your garden amazing for um, yeah. nectar source um so yeah and you know get these little bee bombs don't you you can put in um and they've got lots of different species that that that, that bees like um and other invertebrates as well so um, yeah, that's that's a, that's a definite way to to increase the the food sources and 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 available places for invertebrates, which are key element to um, to biodiversity. So people who um, have they're looking after their gardens, they're doing all the stuff you want to do, mm-hmm. and they're not conservationists. Mm-hmm. They haven't got uh, qualifications in the to- in the subject, but they want to come and help and volunteer. What would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, we've got, um, you know, we've got, let's say, 30, 36 nature reserves across the across the counties, and um, we're really fortunate to have amazing volunteers. Um, what do they call it? The green gym at the time, <laughs> so it's, it's hard work. Um, so what sort of things do you get people to do? Well, today we were planting trees. Right, it's yeah. not always the case. Very often um, we might be, um, you know, it might be um, a really important area of limestone grass, and so we might actually... You know, be doing some sort of control of of hawthorns and mm-hmm. and the like, um, but but cutting the grass at the end of the season, um, building bird hides, putting up um, you know barn owl boxes, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, fixing fixing tracks. So anything you'd expect on a nature reserve, or you know, we have species monitoring volunteers as well. So people have come out and help us monitor the wildlife mm-hmm. to see you know how it's doing because unless we really know and understand what's using our nature reserves and um and, and whether we're doing the right thing and making the right decisions we don't know whether we're doing it right or whether we're blindly going the wrong direction <laughs> so on, on the off chance that one or both of our listeners decides that they <coughs> would like to get involved yep. how do they do it is there a website yeah. that they yeah. can contact so, so if you go on the lester and Rutland wildlife trust uh, website there's a volunteering page and there's there's an email contact and you contact um, and the website uh, www dot um, uh, lrwt.org.uk probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to double check that I'll put a link on our webpage for that excellent yeah brilliant thank you um, anything else you'd like to say to our listeners um, David Atterborough said that um, that 
for you to appreciate wildlife, you have to in, you have to have experienced it. Mm. So um, I'd say get out there, you know, enjoy your garden, enjoy the bees and the and the butterflies in the summer. Even on a winter's day, you've got um, now you've sort of got winter thrushes flying over and mm. um, maybe a starling murmuration nearby. Um, so you know, winter wildlife is amazing. Come down to one of our nature reserves um, and enjoy it. And, and hopefully get an appreciation of, of wildlife because I, you know, I personally think that it makes me a lot happier um, mm. as a person. I'm not just, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely not saying that, you know. Um, uh, this week, for example, at Rutland Water, people have seen otters um, like three, three or four times. And mm. when people see otters, they are elated. You know, just this playful, amazing mammal swimming around, splashing about. You know, it's a moment of a lifetime for a lot of people. Sure, yeah. But, um, you know, I think that mo you know, the majority of people, when they see something like that, they literally remember it for their whole sure, lives. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, obviously you can join the Wildlife Trust and be, be a member, um, but just going out and appreciating it um, is, is a key element. And then if you feel able or, um, or want to get involved, then obviously, you know, do some proactive conservation work um, do some proactive work at home um, become a member you know there's lots of different organizations um, that, that help wildlife um, but I think mm. if you know w without our appreciation without us you know making that connection then if we don't value it then you know I, I think it would just be a catastrophe for the human race mm. <laughs> sounds extreme doesn't it but no, I genuinely true, think yeah. it's the case on that happy note. Yeah. <laughs> but the happy note is that it's not too late and yeah. we, we can help all of us in, the, in some small way. So yeah. that's, that's, that's good to know, I think. Yeah, well said. So yeah. thank you very much, Joe, for your time Pleasure. today. Thanks for having really me. Really interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's nice to meet you. Yeah. you. You will not want to miss our next podcast, which comes from the award-winning Olive Branch in Clipsham, Rutland. We chat with the successful owner, Ben Jones, and our very special guest is Alicia Cairns, Member of Parliament for Melton and Rutland. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. So, that's a wrap. And thank you for listening to our latest pub natter. If you visit timothyives.com forward slash pub natter you will find photos links and more information about each episode please leave a review on apple podcasts and spotify and please subscribe to ensure you don't miss a pub or one of our amazing guests the pub natter theme tune is by tom arnold that was a pub natter broadcast